Marius Kodziowski is a poet, essayist, and travel writer. Books he has written include The Street Philosopher and the Holy Fool, A Syrian Journey, Coast, God's Zoo, The Pebble Chance, and The Serpent Coiled in Naples. He lives in London, England, where until recently he worked as an antiquarian bookseller. We're here to talk about that and his memoir, A Factotum in the Book Trade. Welcome, Marius, to the Bibliophile. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So your memoir has got some excellent laughs in it. <laughs> it's got some very good gossip, got some honest appraisals, <laughs> not of books, well, of books, certainly, yes, and of people, <laughs> and some sweet phrases and reflections on life. And one just in particular, I want to I read off because it really struck a chord, and that is, and if intelligence is a form of enthusiasm, and enthusiasm, the engine that drives the universe, then surely there is some law of electromagnetism to explain what happens between people when in the midst of books. So what does happen? Well, I... I think what is automatically created is, is a kind of environment. I mean, if you consider that books are vessels of the word, vessels of thought, I would suggest that um, uh, there is a kind of infection that takes place in their midst between any two people who have to be, happen to be standing in front of them. You can find yourself having the most unlikely conversations uh, simply when you have, you know, two people looking at the same object. And yes, I, I think uh, people who go into bookshops um, do tend to be literate, um, do tend to have thoughts sometimes. And uh, so I've always thought of the shop as this uh, wonderful kind of theater. You know, it's 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 the most intensely human of environments. What do you mean that people are acting? They're not acting. Uh, just that things in them are released. You know, and hence the wonderful conversations one has, whereby one thing leads to another, to another, to another, and such that we we wonder whether or not it's coincidence or chance, or fate, or any of those wobbly words. Yeah, it's interesting. I just, I've had a couple of interviews with some very accomplished collectors, and in both cases, that's how we describe, or both of them described what happens when, when you collect books. One thing does lead to another. Yes. If, like, I, I, I don't know if I can consider myself a collector, but I am something of a magpie. And if, for example, I hear an author's name mentioned three times within as many days, I feel compelled to read that author. Right. And um, of course, uh, you know, a bookshop is a place where one makes those discoveries that, you know, there's that sense of serendipity, which you don't really get 
in the um, computerized world. That browsing experience is irreplaceable. Yes, the browse is such an important element of our, our I would say, our culture. And you're uh, afraid that we're losing that. I think we are. Um, well, uh, as more and more bookshops close, or as more, or, or, or rather as the very few that survive become uh, a little bit rarefied in atmosphere. Yes, I think a great deal has been lost. When I was first in England, you could go into just about any small town and head straight for the, the bookshop. By and large, they're all gone. With those bookshops have gone the possibilities of conversation. You know, that's exactly why I set up my podcast, was for those, for these kinds of conversations. Indeed. You know, I, I, in the book, I describe um, a single day in the bookshop. I just took note of the conversations I had with people. And you may remember I had this rather brash young Italian marine biologist come in and we started talking about why it is that bookshops are closing and he rather blatantly accused me or rather my generation of having failed to pass the knowledge on and uh, I think that may be to an extent true. We're we're of a particular generation of um, we made ourselves central to the universe, but that's another whole um, <laughs> um, philosophical argument. Um, yeah, but on the flip side, this the next generation has to want to receive the information. Yes, yes. And their idea of receiving information is to simply go to Google. And that's very sad because you have, you know, you actually have young people coming into the shop they, they may be looking for a book, but they base their knowledge on what they find on Google. And with it, they often form the idea of value by looking on things like ABE, which can be, um, it's not always the best of experiences. I shouldn't be saying this as I've just been interviewed by someone from the ABE, but there you have it. You've got a website full of clowns pretending to be booksellers, charging $2,000 for a paperback out of some dingy little shop in Texas in the hope that someone is stupid enough to make a purchase. Uh, There isn't any kind of regulation such as you have in the book trade itself. Yes and no. It's not that there aren't booksellers who try to dupe customers. Mm. I mean, that's certain. It's not unheard of. Yeah, yeah, that's true enough, true enough. But if you do that too often, um, the news yeah. gets out. You know, if you're a member of the Antiquarian Books Association, either here or in America, you're expected to follow roughly a certain code of behavior. Yes, you are, but again, and you, I think you may even raise this, and I think you do raise this in the book, widows beware. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, I, I'm not saying there isn't uh, improper behavior, but I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting there is at least the idea of a um, ethical structure. Yeah, and there isn't that on online with Abe and others. So, I give you a perfect example of that. I I I, I spoke to um, an American bookseller who told me his trick for buying 
libraries from widows. He was quite shameless about this. He, um, he would go look at a library and those books which he didn't think were worth much, he would leave jutting out a little bit. <laughs> and um, so when the offer was made, the seller would say, well, yes, but could I keep these few titles? <laughs> the jutting and, out ones, yeah. And he was absolutely shameless in, 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 in telling me this. Yes, and but Marius, you're undermining your own argument here. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I'm just saying, I don't think I'm undermining it. I'm just saying it's an intensely human sphere with good and bad in equal measure. But do you think it's worse online? It must be. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yes, there's a, speaking of, you know, this range of human emotions, uh, that one, there's one quote in the book where, or, or one phrase where you suggest that the bookstore is the place where you really get the full range. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I, you know, as I keep insisting, you know, um, I maintain that the bookshop is the soul of the trade. It's where things happen. Right. Whereas if you're selling online, it's merely procedure. You pull the book from the shelf, you print out the slip of paper that goes inside it and send it off. Yes, yes. But what about soul then? What are you talking about when you say soul? Ah, uh, well, now we really are dealing with imponderables. Um, the, the soul as in the, you know, the spirit of the trade, the, you know, the, um, the heart of it, where everything really happens, you know. The conversations, the, yeah. the discoveries, yeah. those extraordinary elements of chance, um, all these other things. The learning, too. The learning, indeed, yeah. Okay, well, so let's go back to that farmhouse in rural Ontario. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where you were born. Where was that exactly? Well, I, 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 I grew up in... A, in the heart of um, rural Protestant Ontario, about 60 miles away from Ottawa, or if you prefer 60,000 miles away from Ottawa, because that's what it felt like when one grew up in the rural place. Your neighbors had probably never been to the capital of Canada. They very rarely strayed beyond the local town. And I was in a somewhat different position in that my parents were both immigrants to Canada. My, my, my father was Polish, my mother English. And so they had, a, uh, dare I say, a somewhat bigger view of the world. Um, and they had books in the house. They, were, they, they didn't have money, but when um, they came to Canada, my mother made sure that a number of, you know, a fair number of books were shipped over from, from England. And thank goodness, because there weren't any bookshops to be found anywhere near. I remember when the first Penguin bookshop opened in Ottawa. Now, this would have been in the 50s. My parents jumped into the car and drove quickly in case the bookshop would be gone the next day. He had to stock up. It was pretty much a desert back then. 
Yes. The course has changed now. You know, in those days, books were simply not to be had or to be found unless you went to the annual jumble sale, which is where I got my start buying books, usually for their tactile qualities. Where was that jumble sale? Um, in a little village called Bishop's Mills, which I'm sure you haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. You're a town called Kempville, which I'm sure you haven't heard of. Oh, no, I, I know Kempville. Oh, do you? Oh, yes. Well, whatever for? <laughs> were, were you stuck there or did you? <laughs> okay, I'll just throw it in. I had a very pleasant evening with a, a friend of mine who used to be the librarian at McGill and then he moved to Penn University and uh, he director of a library there. His sister lives there. David McKnight is his name. Uh, right. Yes, that rings a bell. Anyway, so yeah, I do know Kempville. And you know what? They put up quite a nice library there recently. Well, in the last five years or six years, I think. Yes, yes. And there's a very good bakery opposite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people from Ottawa actually drive down there to buy um, the Bakewell tart. Okay. Okay, so you say that your parents were a deeply sad couple. Why is that? Oh, well, my, I mean, this, I don't, I, I don't want to go into it too deeply, um, but my father had a difficult war. He was in the, in the gulag. Um, he had, uh, when Germany and Russia split Poland, he tried to get, to the UK to join the war effort and was caught in Estonia and then taken from there to the Libyanka prison in Moscow and from there to the Gulag north of the Arctic Circle. And he saw terrible things and he, uh, most of which he never spoke of. Um, But gradually when England and Russia became allies, one of the conditions was that they had to release the Polish prisoners to give, to give them the choice of either joining the war effort in, the, in, in, in England or, or staying in the Soviet Union, which only fools did. And so he came around and met my mother in London and um, they went to Canada after the war because um, my father's brother and his father were there and they went not really knowing anything about rural life well not only in Canada but anywhere they had no experience and my mother was a very disappointed woman and you know yeah it made for you know there's there's probably nothing so foreign to somebody English as living in another country where the same language is spoken you know who I'm, I'm thinking of is uh, Strickland's in Peterborough, you know, the, the famous settlers who wrote the books. You know, it's a Canadian classic. Oh, Roughing, Roughing it in the Bush. Yeah, that's... Anna Moody. Moody, that's right. That's what, that's what this is putting me in mind of. Uh, it wasn't quite as rustic as that, but it, it was a, a fairly you know, rough area I grew up in. 
people, you know, hadn't had much opportunity in their life and they, they, they worked hard, they struggled and I don't hold any grudge whatsoever against them, but it, it wasn't an easy place for, um, let's say, foreigners to settle. The prejudice? A, a certain amount, yes, absolutely. I mean, what was a poll, for example? Whose side did they fight on? Those are real questions. I, I remember sort of kids saying, did Poles fight with the Nazis? And, you know, you have to remember there, wasn't, there weren't books, there wasn't television. Very few people had newspapers. And yes, there was prejudice, as you would find in most rural communities. You're from Montreal. You wouldn't believe the prejudice against the French Canadians, for example. Uh, although they'd never actually met one. Um, it was the fear of the, um, the fear of the stranger, the fear of the outside. I, I'm not saying that is a uniquely Canadian, it's, it's universal. So how did this all affect you then? Um, I think as a single child of European parents, at that point you were faced with two choices either to become more Canadian than the Canadians or to retreat into some kind of inner exile, which is what I did. I'm not trying to strike a dramatic note. It was just the, um, uh, I just, I was just some kind of a peculiar European in, in this, um, in this um, odd environment. Marius, I know exactly what that feels like because I, though born in Canada, I grew up in England and came back at about 11 or 12 to Saskatchewan. Right. Saskatchewan, which is where, you know, um, a, a turn up on the horizon would be a major event. <laughs> um, okay. What about then? What about your teens and university and things like that? What did you do? The teens were terrible. Uh, I went to the local high school in Kempel, Ontario. I remember I was, even at that point, I was gravitating towards literature. I was writing bad poetry. And one of which got the, the school prize, first prize for poetry. And, and I went up on stage and I got my $10 bill, I think it was. And, you know, feeling, oh, I've, you know, I've made it. I'm now something at this, in this sort of a terrible place. And at the end of the day, I was leaving the school and there were some boys waiting for me. And they said, oh, you, you're a poet then, are you? And I said, well, you know, just write the odd poem or two. And, um, and they beat me up. And... <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm, almost, I'm almost grateful to them um, because it, 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 it put me in the position of knowing exactly who I wasn't and where I might want to go, which was anywhere else. What age were you at that point? I think I was, oh, 15, 16. And in my teens, I would... Um, you know, those were the days when one would hitchhike, and I would hitchhike to Ottawa. And I remember walking into Shirley Leishman's first bookshop. 
That's before, before Leachman became a major concern. A one room a shop off, um, what's it, what was it? Um, what street, off Elgin Avenue. I walked in and there was, there confronting me was this rack of books, black and white covers, and they were all New Directions paperbacks. Rambo, Baudelaire, Lorca, Ferlinghetti, all these people. And it, I don't know if it was the, the look of those books, but they constituted a kind of forbidden territory for me. Were those the ones with the Lustig uh, uh, covers? Alvin Lustig? Um, they were photo, photo, photogra photographic. Oh, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, photographic covers. I just remember seeing you know, that the face of the young Rambo on the cover and thinking, who is this? And that, that opened up a whole universe for me. In addition to that, I remember being at home near Bishop's Mills on the farm, turning on a Boston radio station and hearing the strains of Bob Dylan's It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, and thinking there's never been anything like this before. So it, it, it was a point of um, great restriction in my life, but also the opening up of a universe simultaneously. And I knew that was the way I'd, I'd have to go. So how, what happened then? How did you get out? Like what? Well, what I, 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 I went, I bombed out of high school. I, I, I failed miserably in my final year because I didn't do any work. I was in such a state of despair. Uh, but there was a possibility of going to college. And I remember looking at the, um, you know, the courses on offer and I just, I just put my finger down on cartography. <laughs> but yes, and so I went to Ottawa, studied cartography for a year, but I couldn't continue because it, it, you had to work within five thousandths of an inch at all times, and I was getting blinding headaches and working over a lit table. So I dropped out, and I, beca I became your, your classic directionless youth working in places like the bamboo shop and the light bulb warehouse. And in, I must have had about 15 jobs in the space of three years or so. You know, I was, I was for quite a while, I was co completely lost, but I, I did take courses at Carleton University, mm -hmm. just evening courses or whatever, and gradually got in to university through the back door. I didn't do an awful lot there. It was that, you know, there was that, that it was that period of rebellion and everything else. I, I, I didn't read the books on the course, but I did read uh, countless books on the poetry shops in the library and got involved in, uh, well, in actually creating a little bit of a poetry scene in Ottawa. There was um, a wonderful coffee house called Libu, which had many you know, great acts come there. And um, I was allowed one night a month uh, to run a poetry evening. There was nothing so unusual in that, except it was the first venue in Ottawa that, for poetry, which was not in a, on a university campus. You know, I was, I was always looking for the alternative life at that point. So, so when did you go to England? Um, 1973. How old were you? Uh, 23, I think. I think 24, 23, I went with the woman who had become my wife, but we didn't stay in England. We spent a whole year 
traveling, um, settling for a few months in Tunisia and going from there through Italy, up through Eastern Europe. And then we ended up in England absolutely penniless. And if you arrive in England penniless, you, you, you're never able to leave again. And I ended up working for a public library and then I worked for the Poetry Society. And when I was given an hour's notice to leave the Poetry Society, uh, because I'd be removed by the police otherwise. I did a little bit of freelance gardening, not knowing the slightest thing about gardening. The Poetry Society, I think you say, is much more about administration than actually talking at all about poetry. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's almost always some level of corruption. Um, I think I think what you, sorry, I think what you, uh, maybe I should let you continue there on the corruption part, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there was a, a real corruption, but also the corruption of the very ideals out of which such organizations grew. But equal time for everyone or what? No, no, the ideal being that, you know, um, basically being the promotion of poetry. I, I, I'm, I've never been a believer in equality. I don't think there is such a thing. <laughs> okay, let's put it this way. <laughs> Someone has to decide who the best ones are and putting them on stage. Is that it? Um, you mean the poets? Poets, poets? yeah. Yes, I mean, it, it was really, it was whoever was available. I mean, the poetry readings were very good, um, a lot of them. I thought what you said is that most poets could use use a shot of voice training. Uh, well, yes, um, they, you do get an awful lot of mumblers, and um, uh, but then then again, um, probably the majority of poets shouldn't get any kind of airing. I mean, they need to be culled every so often, and of course, it was with that idea that I fell in with the with the outrageous. William Hoffer from Vancouver, who genuinely wanted poets culled. He wanted writers culled. He... Culled or killed? Well, culled is a nicer word, isn't it? Like culling deer. <laughs> in order that the stronger survive. Yes, I mean, that's what you do in your book, uh, is, you, uh, is you give us all sorts of, uh, as we said, portraits of people and the books themselves. Well, here's the thing. Recently, I put one of my podcasts through a critique by an expert. And what he said to me was that uh, my podcast lacked a narrative arc, uh, that it uh, didn't have a before and after, uh, didn't have a hero's journey. It was all over the place. And, and uh, <laughs> that's what he said. Uh, and he was, he was critical of that. What I responded with was, my podcast, I hope that they're like a pub crawl. I hit as many pubs as I can, and I stay at the pubs that are interesting for as long as they're interesting, and then move on. That's mm. what I thought about your book. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of light on, on the narrative arc, which didn't really, bo it bothered me a bit to start for the first 
I would say for the, maybe the first third of the book, yeah. I was expecting a, a more of a personal story to be woven in. Mm -hmm. But then I got caught up in all of these interesting stories that you told about people and books. Yes, I, I, I abhor the straight line. I mean, anything I write is a kind of circumbendibus. You know, I go off in all directions. Occasionally, I try to get back to base. Sometimes I don't. Um, it's the way I write. Uh, yeah. The bottom line is, is it interesting or not? Mm. Uh, for me, anyway. And, uh, and, I, and I found it interesting. So it's a thumbs up. Your book is definitely a thumbs up. For me, but I knew it, I kind of in a way I knew it would be to start with. But I just wonder, there's not much on your private life there. I mean, there's some lovely reflections on life, but I don't get a sense of what actually happened in your personal life at all. <laughs> well, I, I, I've, um, I've always been at great pains to keep a necessary distance writing. The same has been said about some of my travel writing, you know, people saying, well, where are you Yeah, in the story? I mean, the ideal for me is to be the invisible uh, storyteller. Yeah, but it's, I did want to know more about your personal life. I just found myself wanting to, to know more. Well, you know, it's not up for sale. Well, that, that's why that's why we're doing the podcast, so I can dig into it. <laughs> <laughs> you can try. Yeah. Um, well, go on. <laughs> okay. Let, no, let's just let's just move along then from the poetry society. Uh, and as I say, throughout the book, there's just these great little uh, not they're not life lessons. They're more reflections on life. Here's one, for example, on page forty nine. Sometimes, though, the stories by which we live in the mind are truer than the ones we actually live. We adjust our lives to their shape. You're not going to ask me to explain that, are you? <laughs> um, you know, when speaking of people's aspirations and dreams, they may not represent in the total, any kind of reality, but there's still the, the star that we, you know, they constitute the star that we follow or try to follow. Yeah. I think, I think, as you say, it's also a way for us to achieve things that we want to achieve. It's like, okay, you tell yourself that you're a certain person or you're, you aspire to something, but you, you live it anyway before it happens. Yeah. You know, I, I get to, I, I, I keep getting people saying to me, I want to be a writer. And my response is, as long as you keep saying that, you'll never become a writer. You simply got to decide one day that you are a writer. And act like one. Yeah, and I think that can be extended into whole uh, many different sort of areas of activity. You just do it. Here's another uh, reflection. He with smallest wants approaches the gods most nearly. That I, that's not me. You put it in the book. No, but I, I think I stole that. 
Oh yeah, no, I know you. I know it's not. It's not made <laughs> up by you, but you popped it in there. I just wanted to get. Oh to right. Well, is that when I was? Ah, was that the the passage passage where I was describing that Romanian singer? Maybe yeah. It's a lovely. It's a. It's just yeah. a lovely uh, reflection. I think. Was it Plato? I think. Oh, here it is. It's right on the next page. Yeah, it's right on the same page. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah, well, speaking of music, music's, music's very important to you, isn't it? Hugely important. Hugely. Yes, so if you want to go into my personal life, we could, we could switch from books to music, if you like. <laughs> um, it's one of the most important dimensions I inhabit. And how does it inform your, your your love of books then? I, in terms of one's passions, um, they're indistinguishable. That passion comes from exactly the same place. At least for me, it does. One could draw all kinds of odd parallels. You could, let's say, take the writing of, of uh, Kafka, of Czech, and put against that the compositions of Bela Bartok, a Hungarian, a writer and a composer who were breathing of the same atmosphere. Same angst? Same angst as well, yes. So you do a lot of that, matching up music with authors. Then. I wouldn't say, no, I, it's not that deliberate, um, but I'm, I'm just citing as, as, as a kind of line that one could draw. But yes, I listen to a lot of music, mostly classical, mostly mm -hmm. chamber music. Okay. Tell me about Bertram uh, Rota. Well, um, when I started, it was the, probably the, well, it was the most important dealer in modern first editions and in manuscript collections in particular. You know, I, part of my work was dealing with um, literary archives, which was the most enjoyable bit. Why is that? Why? Why? Oh, because you're looking, uh, if you're dealing with a literary archive, you're, <clears throat> you're peering right into writers' worlds, sometimes not always pleasant ones. <laughs> you, you'd be amazed by what writers intentionally or subconsciously or unintentionally leave in their archives incriminating evidence that's what we want now give us a dead one well um I, I, don't, I don't particularly want to name names but i can there was um one was a you name names uh, philosopher Sorry, you, yes, but you do name names in your book. That's one of the things that's... Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, I, I, I do act with extreme prejudice sometimes. Okay, I'll give you one name. There might be an outcry. Was the, the philosopher stroke art critic Richard Wolheim, who wrote most of his books under the... Well, under the influence of um, Freud and psychoanalysis stuff, which I wholly disagreed. And I remember working on his massive archive and being so 
distressed by his approach to art that I would slip out at lunchtime and go to the National Gallery and stand in front of a, a Piero della Francesca painting for 15 minutes, simply in order to recover my composure. Going through it, there was a little black notebook and lo and behold, in that notebook were the names of women that um, he had slept with and in which he rated them in the most clinical and cold fashion imaginable. How many were in the book? Oh, I, I can't remember, but enough to be, to make one feel deeply uncomfortable, if not disgusted. And I was going through this and lo and behold, who walks in but the man himself. I remember that moment very, very clearly, a little black notebook. I put it down, immediately put it down on the table, thinking, oh my, he's caught me. And then I picked it up between my thumb and my little finger by the corner, and I handed it to him, saying, I think that perhaps you didn't mean to include this in the archive. And he sort of took it and gave a weak giggle. But the thing is, he probably did mean to include it in the archive. Just uh, to show off how, how virile he was? Well, perhaps as a form of self-laceration. Could mm. that be it? Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. You know, I've, 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 I've even been in this position of um, authors putting in uh, pornographic photographs of themselves. And they sort of want to get caught. Yes, yes. That does make it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I can't say it was that interesting. It was simply unpleasant. Okay. But you said that this is one of the reasons why you like it so much. Dealing of archives? No, no, not at all. I, I'm much more impressed in discovering more about how a person writes. Um, I can think back to one time when I was going through the letters of Patrick Lee Fermer to um, this great society lady, was Diana Cooper. You suggest that those are the greatest letters ever written. Yes, they're close to. Those and the ones that Henry, Henry Green wrote to Neville Coghill. Oh yes, absolutely wonderful. And extraordinarily, uh, they haven't been published yet. In either case? Uh, no, the Fermor ones have been published, but not the Henry Green. And they are, they, are, they are just the most wonderful letters. And the letters are every bit as fascinating as the writing the novels themselves. Wow. There was one letter in particular where he describes, a, he worked in his father's factory, and he described a bird flying around desperately in, in, within the confines of the building. That letter was a piece of literature, as far as I'm concerned. The curves the birds made against that sky, that describing the children, right? That, that was another um, instance of birds. There was another one where a bird just uh, got into um, a factory by mistake and um, was flying around desperately. So where are these letters now? They're at Eton College. 
Maybe there's a publisher listening right now. Let's hope, yeah. And if so, I know I know the perfect editor editor for it, and it's not me. Okay, who is it? Um, an ex colleague of mine called John Byrne, who 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 ran the manuscripts department. He had long expressed a desire that a desire that they be published. But I think I'm not sure. But I I, I don't quote me on this. I think there were po possibly legal tangles or or something or something to do with rights. I just don't know. John Byrne, you mentioned, taught you taught you so much about the, the book trade. What, what was the most important lesson that he taught you? Well, I think it was accuracy. Um, that one had to be absolutely accurate in describing a book. Because other, otherwise you'd be, you know, faced with the problems of having to deal with returns or people not being sat, satisfied. But of course, John Byrne is a... He's a man far more accurate than I could ever be. To my horror, he just read my book, uh, The Serpent Coiled in Naples, which I thought was word perfect and came up with a list of 50 oh my goodness. errors or uh, typos, uh, which left me in a state of shock. So of all the people I've ever known, I've never, I've never come across anyone with a greater penchant for the accurate than John Byrne. No, not a bad person to have for, for a teacher, I have to say, because he started me off describing fine printing, fine press books. Mm, yeah. There you have to be absolutely spot on in your descriptions. What else did he teach you? Anything else? You know, he taught me how to, how to deal with archives, how to put them in order and how to uh, describe them. Rota lowballed you on your Wyndham Lewis collection and then sold it at a handsome profit. Um, I almost regret putting that in the book. It looks as though it might have been put there in the spirit of vengeance, which I, I didn't want it to be. I, I certainly didn't want to attack him in any way. But when Dan Wales asked me to write this memoir, I was faced with a great problem. You know, do I present this rather lovely picture of the book world, this, this fiction, or do I tell the truth about things? And I decided on the latter course, of course. Uh, uh, and when you tell the truth about things, you, you do find yourself zero, zeroing in on people's frailties. And at times their faults. So I think I'd just rather leave that story be without expanding on it. Okay. Yeah. But you weren't invite, invited to his memorial or funeral. Uh, because by that point, I was no longer working for the firm. And there was that very odd atmosphere of exclusivity uh, with is you, you were either with them or not with them. And so as soon as you left, you were in a way disqualified from the conversation. And I did end up there quite by chance, not even realizing it was um, his funeral. Yes. You suggest that he shouldn't have even been in the book business. He rarely read much and uh, it didn't really matter what he was selling. No, I, I, I think it, it mattered what he was selling because his, his father was a, 
you know, hugely esteemed bookseller, Bertram Rota. We're talking about Anthony here, aren't we? Anthony, yes. You know, and I, I, th I think it would be unfair to say he could have been selling anything. He was, in many respects, an extremely good bookseller. Uh, but I don't think he had any great feeling for books, which is something quite different. Okay. Whereas yeah. someone like Peter Jolliffe had perhaps too much feeling for books, such that he became, I would say, an almost tragic case. What, you mean he loved books too much to sell them? Yes, oh yes. There were times, I, I mean, I have witnessed occasions when he simply refused to sell a book. You know, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't help but have a kind of perverse, perverse admiration for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, oh, yes, exactly, it's good. You know. Especially if you felt the book was going to the wrong person, like, you know, you could just see it in his eyes. Right. You know, I don't want this creep to have this wonderful <laughs> book. You know. It doesn't make for a very good bookseller, he, well, but it doesn't make for a great bookman, which is what he was. And just tell me a bit about him. Peter was really one of the most extraordinary people. There was, um, there was something a bit intergalactic about him not quite of the human race. But then um, his, well, his whole, he was a very lonely figure. His childhood was terribly lonely. His mother died, died very young. And his father, when the mother died, the father never spoke of her. She became a sort of a non, a non-subject. And so Jolliffe sort of drifted into his own world, you know, of uh, books and Books were his world. Books were his family. Is there a lot of that that goes on in the in the trade? Do you think or not? I think it used to be the case more more in the past. Okay. Uh, I would say Peter Jolliffe was one of the the last really great eccentric booksellers who couldn't bear to part with his books. But there were others, you know, uh, of his and uh, or certainly of an earlier generation. Uh, I remember there was grouchy figures in in Cecil Court, that little alleyway full of bookshops who would be so bloody minded when it came to selling a book that they were reluctant to let go. <laughs> and um, they would just say, oh, it's not for sale, you know? <laughs> so, and, um, you know, and I, 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 I have to say, I've, I, on occasion, I felt like that myself sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I can think back, to a time when I, I don't, I don't think I even wrote about this, where I refused to sell a book to a particularly obnoxious customer. I just didn't want that person to have the book. Right. Well, and you've got the power to do that too. It's like you've got the power to act against your own financial interest if you want to. Well, uh, no, it, uh, I, I wasn't acting against my own financial interests, but against my bosses, because <laughs> I've always been the factotum. Yes, yes, you because you really you don't like the administration part necessarily, uh, and you want time to write. Yes, I. Um, I mean, I. I I, I was offered the possibility of a, of a partnership with Peter Ellis, but he very wisely, because he knew me, he, he, he very wisely said, you know, if, if you become a, a bookseller proper, I'll guarantee you'll stop writing. He was right. Um, there was a period of a, one year where I did manage a bookshop, uh, Bernard Stones, 
and I can tell you I wrote not a single word right that year. I was so worried about the business at the end of things. Let's just go with a couple of another reflection on the on the customer. The most interesting customers are ones that follow their own path and shun fashion. Mm. Well, yes. Um, that's always the case, isn't it? Easy to follow a list or, you know. Yes, yes. I have to say one of the things that has saddened me most is the demise of the, the old style book collector who follows his passions. There were just, there was a whole new breed of collector who were buying the books that he or she felt ought to be seen on, on the shelves. That they thought had real value. Yes, yes, thought had value. And those were invariably the most boring collectors. Invariably. Um, but no, wait a minute. The ones, the ones, no, the ones that, that sought out sort of new fields because they thought they, that it was a valuable and not financially just valuable and important thing to go after. Those are not boring. It's the ones that just look to try and make some money off it. Yes, um, it's very interesting. You, you would have people, individuals collecting furiously for a few years and then they sell their library. And I don't get it. I just don't get it. Well, I think you do get it, though, because you do you talk about a collector who does that, did that sort of thing. And it's largely because they've collected everything they can. And they want to keep collecting new other stuff. So they sell it or try and sell it. Yes, yes. Uh, that's a somewhat different instance. One of the most fascinating book collectors I know of is a man called Tony Feketer, who um, buys yeah, unlikely translations of books. If he were offered the first French edition of Robinson Crusoe, he wouldn't be interested. But he was delighted when he was offered the first Maltese one. Now, there you have a collector who really is going his own way. It's an extraordinary library. I don't know what... He, he's a driven. He's one of these collectors who are, who are truly driven. Here's another quote. There is nothing, and I just love this. This is probably my favorite quote in the book. There is nothing that can replicate the thrill of going into an unknown bookstore for the first time. That is the truth. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And of course, that experience becomes harder and harder to, to have. Yeah. For example, I've never taken any pleasure in book fairs. Because you know that the books on those shelves are there for a purpose. You know, they're, they're valuable with a high price, which I couldn't afford to pay anyway. No, you want the treasure. You want to find something that's a treasure that's, a, that's underpriced. Yes. But moreover, I want to find something that's a treasure that I actually want. And that's the most thrilling thing of all. You know, there, there are certain bookshops that have that quality. I can think of one right away, an enormous barn of a place called Leakey's. Scotland? Yeah, in Scotland, in Inverness. And you only have to walk through, through the front door of that place 
to know there is something there that you want, if only you can find it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I've never, I've never left that place without a book. Right. Well, and I, you're like me. It sounds to me like you have never left any bookstore without a, without a book. Yeah. Yeah. We're, 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 we're both of us. We're very clearly um, rather sick people for which there is no known cure. Yeah. Moving along here, let's get back to Bill Hopper. <laughs> I've read some of his catalogs, mm -hmm. and they are just filled with wicked put-downs and, and strong opinions, and they're really entertaining. Well, yes, I was the victim of one of his put-downs. <laughs> I wrote something he particularly hated. And, and the thing about Bill Hoffman, when he hated something, he turned it into a campaign. Like the tanks campaign. Yes. I mean, he was one of the most unreasonable of people. And yet, with it, you did get the sense of a, a genuine passion for books. I, and in his case, I, sus I suspect a desire to be a writer which he never was. He was a polemicist to a degree, but I think he probably wanted to be more and didn't have it in him. I, he wanted to be a poet. Hmm. And didn't have what in him? Guts? Talent. Mm. Forgot about that, didn't you? I did. <laughs> well, there's so little of it around, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, here you say my friendship with Bill, and 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 listeners can get a a, a good uh, portrayal of him in your in your book, a factotum in the book trade. You say my friendship with Bill was woven into the very fabric of what it is to be a bookseller. So, what is it to be a bookseller? What's that fabric? Um, I'm trying to remember what I. What I meant there, um, I think it was that ability he had, and which I would like to think I have, to read significance into books. Um, he had it to distinguish significance. Um, no, not to distinguish, but to to understand why a book is important. He had it to an extraordinary degree, which made him such an interesting bookseller. You know, he would, he would see the significance why a book might be historically important or important in terms of literature. Let's say there was a, I'm trying to remember his name at the moment, there was an, a Norwegian writer called Grieg who Composer? No, not the composer. No, I can't quite remember his name. He was a poet. Okay. But Bill felt he had, the book was important because it had an influence on Malcolm Lowry. So you really have to have read deeply yes. and yes. widely to, to capture all these. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Bill had it, and of course, um, another person who had it to an incredible degree was Martin Stone about whom so much has already been written. Did he have his own shop or what? Only briefly. 
Martin was far too restless to ever have a bookshop. He had one for a few months, which he invited me to manage many, many years ago. And it's a good thing I didn't take him up on the offer because he, he lost interest almost immediately. Martin Stone has um, an almost supernatural knowledge of, of writers, particularly those of the symbolists, you know, the French symbolist school, even the minor figures, and could draw links between the minor figures and the major ones. And um, in, in, in some respects, I would say Martin Stone was one of the greatest booksellers who ever lived because his knowledge was so formidable. Ah. But you say, and you say there's been a lot written on him? Yes, um, I, I, there's a memoir by, was it John Baxter? Anybody who's written about the book trade will have written about, about Stone. And, and his ability to, to go into a, the most hopeless of environments and come away with a treasure. I've never known anyone with his ability. And also his, um, his ability to forge links was such that he would know who among writers would have, let's say, important books by Samuel Beckett because they were, they'd been friends at some point. And so he was always on to great libraries before anyone else because he knew the links. I just want to just quickly look at another collector, Raymond Donowski, <laughs> mm. who you say is an example of generosity that calls for witness. Uh, Donowski was a, a very, very strange figure, I have to say, I, I, somewhat sinister. He built a poetry collection, which was absolutely enormous. I don't know if he ever looked at a single book. In that yeah, there was a gigantic warehouse, right? Absolutely, in Switzerland, which he called the, the hole, and everything would go into the hole. I, I really first knew about him when I went to work for Bernard Stone. Bernard Stone survived as a bookseller by supplying schools in South Africa with textbooks the sale of which was subsidized by Donowski. Clearly, there's a case of generosity. But at the same time, I found myself in the middle of two figures who were involved in constant psychological warfare. Raymond played Bernard, you know, as if he was a puppet. And I was always worried about, you know, all the, all the money coming from a single figure because... I always said to Bernard, what would happen? Happen if we lost Raymond Donowski? We'd be finished. And Bernard always said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You know, we'll be fine. And, um, and then it, it happened. The terrible thing happened. I, uh, at Donowski's encouragement, well, encouragement, I should say, insistence, we moved to a new venue. And, of course, it costs a lot of money getting it into the right shape. And on the day of the opening, Donowski sent a cab to the bookshop. The driver came in with a little folded note from him, which said, uh, you know, this marks the end of Bernard Stone. Yeah, that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? It was horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And even then, 
Blackburn and said, don't worry, we've got a warehouse. I've got a warehouse full of books I've been accumulating for decades and decades. And so I thought, okay, all right, let's see what these treasures are. And they weren't treasures. They were, it was mostly junk, remainders. It was a desperate situation. But you do accept Danowski's definition of of a book collector. Here's how, here's how he puts it. I want to say book collecting is fun, serious fun possibly, but always an antidote to the idiocies of life and the pretensions of academia. Book collecting mm-hmm. is an outlet for fanaticism, passion, love, and rash, rationality without their drawbacks. I put that in simply in order to give him the benefit of the doubt. I never discussed poetry with Raymond Donowski. I saw him many times. I never got the sense of him liking any writers in particular, but I did get the sense that he wanted to have everything. Yes. Now, do you know if it was, was it Stephen Ennis that bought his collection for Emery? It, it, It was given. To Emory, given. Given. I mean, there must have been tax write-offs. I imagine because um, Donowski was a businessman. He was in the art world. You know, even there, I, I, I did he give books to South African schools out of a spirit of generosity, or was there something else behind it? I just, I just don't know. Donowski was the darkest of all dark horses. Hmm. Why do you like Naples so much? Ah, it was, I knew from the moment I landed there that this was a place which was a perfect mirror to my own spiritual inner anarchy. You want, you want the stuff about me? There you have it. <laughs> but I'm not getting specifics. There's such a duality in that city, life and death and a very thin veil dividing them such that Neapolitans sort of move between the two, between life and death, with the greatest of ease. That's interesting. There is the cult of skulls, which fascinated me. People who would, um, mostly elderly women, who would look after skulls. The idea being that the possessor of the skull, the spirit, would come to them in dreams and offer suggestions. But the Neapolitans being Neapolitan, you know, they would tend to ask for the lottery ticket numbers. But that thin veil between life and death is is manifested in its philosophers, in popular belief. You mean they're not uh, uptight about death? Is that what you're saying? They don't... uh... They're uptight about that, but they're also familiar. They don't, they, don't partic- they don't particularly want to die, but they have a very close relationship with it. They're familiar with death. You know, it is a city of darkness, a city of light. And in that respect alone, really one of the most fascinating places I've ever been. I just knew from the moment I, I landed that this was the city for me. And listeners can read, read your book on the city, too. If they so wish. Delighted if they did. Mm-hmm. It's called The Serpent Coiled in Naples. Would you say that you got into book selling because of the friendships you were able to make through it? No, 
no, I had no idea what I was doing. I um, I got into book selling because um, I I didn't have a job, and because one of the directors of Bertram Rotor, uh, a man by the name of George Lawson, got me incredibly drunk, <laughs> and I just remember being at this restaurant uh, called the Zanzibar, and at the end of the meal, he said, "Well, we'll see you at work tomorrow morning." And so it was, I found myself in the book trade. I was um, press ganged. Yes, but what kept you there? I must have gotten this from somewhere. What kept you there was the friendships that you made as a result of? Uh, the friendships are, are, are a hugely important byproduct. What kept me there really was the fact of having a young family and not really being fit for much else. I'm not an academic. I don't have a, a head for business. I didn't find books objectionable. And as I said somewhere at the beginning of the book, you know, the book trade is a, is a, is a floating world for people incapable of doing anything else. And I was one of those. Just winding down here, you're, you described your library as a bridge over which knowledge will be ferried. I'm, I don't know if I'm quoting it. I think I am, but it, it, actually, it's, it's a bit odd. It's you say that your library is a bridge over which knowledge will be ferried. Did I? Yeah. Page three fourteen. Three fourteen. What was I talking about? You know, just because I say things doesn't mean I mean them. <laughs> and you wrote it down. Oh right. Well, I have no memory of this line. Well, a bit pretentious, isn't it? Well, it's, it's nice, though. I mean, really, yeah. when you think of it. My library is a kind of bridge, a bridge more firmly constructed than myself. It's bolts in the right places and over which knowledge will be ferried. Yes, that's what my books are to me. Yeah. They're objects that I like to have but objects with, which are heavily freighted with meaning. That you can learn from. Yes. Although, you know, given the, I'm not one of those like certain collectors who is so locked into his books that he would sacrifice even experience for them. Yes. Um, yeah. Experience is, ultimately more important yeah it's better yeah 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 that's a good point i just want to finish on this collector this collector named patrick oh patrick mm. maybe you could patrick. talk just a little bit about him yes um patrick was you know one of the very last cockneys he, he was unschooled. Listening to him was like walking through a grammatical minefield. But he was absolutely sincere in his quest for knowledge. He was a pensioner. He didn't have much money, but and would buy books from the outside shelves and would quite often buy books which were inscribed by the authors. It didn't matter if the author, no one had ever heard of the author. It gave him pleasure to go to the library that week and find out who the author was. And he took such 
pleasure in this that of all the people I sold books to, it gave me the most pleasure because he, 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 um, he took such delight in just going for the one pound, two pound books until he landed on something. Um, and in that respect, you know, I, I found him a very touching figure, a man who was determined to teach himself. And, you know, ultimately the, 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 the kind of collector I like the most. I would, you know, I, 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 I would sooner have one Patrick than a hundred wealthy collectors who buy books simply because they, simply because they can afford them. It came as a terrible shock, you know, to discover he died of COVID complications following COVID. And um, certainly uh, people in the book trade were, you know, really, really saddened by his death. Such a genuine figure. Yeah, Peter Ellis, who you worked with uh, in Cecil Court, said that he he was one of the people he would miss the most. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For months after he died, I don't I don't think there was a day that went by that I didn't think of Patrick at least once. And in terms of you know my life as a as a bookseller, his existence was inex inextricable with mine. Well, let me just finish with this quote then. Uh, the presence of such people in the world is enough to make me think that the bookseller's life and all the drudgery it entails is worth it. And let me say that it's certainly been worth talking with you and thank you for your presence, presence Marius. It's, uh, it's been a real treat. Well, thank you very much for um, having me. I, I hope I've said something of, um, of use. What's that? Make contact when you come. Uh, yes, I'd love to uh, meet you in the, in the flash. And you can come and look at my books and I'll count them after you leave. Uh, and you'd be wise to do that. <laughs> Great. Great. So we've been talking about a factotum in the uh, book trade, a memoir by Marius Kochiowski. Thanks yep. again for your time. Great pleasure.